1: Welcome to Political Rewind on this day that we celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. I'm Bill Nygut. I I think uh, it is safe to say that while this holiday and Dr. King's legacy are recognized and celebrated by so many people around the country, particularly on this day, I'm not sure there's anywhere in the country where it resonates more than right here in Georgia, his home state, And certainly in Atlanta, where he launched so much of the work, excuse me, that he did in his lifetime, uh, his campaign for racial justice, equal rights for all. So we're going to spend some time today talking about the legacy and talking about where the unfulfilled promises remain. And I couldn't ask for a better panel to do just that than the one we have today, starting with my Monday partner, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the show, Patricia Murphy. You know she's a political reporter and a political columnist at the AJC. You read her Political Inside column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the actual newspaper. And uh, she oversees uh, The Jolt, which is a great daily summary of what's happening in politics at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. How are you?
0: Good morning, Bill. Thanks so much for having me today.
1: I'm really, really delighted uh, that you are with us today, so thank you. Uh, We're also joined today um, by another distinguished journalist, um, John Pruitt, my colleague at WSB-TV for a long time. John, of course, one of the best-known, most highly respected anchor men in uh, uh, North Georgia. Uh, And um, now we think of you, John, just as much as an author. Because your book, Tell It True, which we did a show about some time ago, uh, your novel has been published. It's getting a lot of attention. You've been promoting it all over the place. And and it's interesting to note that on this King holiday, you're writing a fictionalized version of an actual racial murder, a hate crime. In 1964, a black serviceman, army uh, officer, murdered and the events that ensued, which you covered as a young reporter at WSB TV, right?
2: Well, that's right. My first week on the job at WSB was uh, the first week of July, 1964, the week the Civil Rights Act of 64 was signed into law by LBJ. And uh, that was my initiation into the journalism business as the uh, civil rights movement was embroiling the South. Uh, and in, in fact, the second week on the job, Lemuel Penn, an African-American retired Lieutenant Colonel driving back home to Washington DC from Fort Benning, Georgia was was ambushed by Klansmen, north of Athens, shotgun to death, a sensational crime. And it was indicative of, of the violent resistance to civil rights and progress for African-Americans that was very much a factor in the South. It was a dangerous time, a, uh, a time of, of great peril for certainly the protesters, the civil rights demonstrators, and, and the journalists covering it. That's what my book, Tell It True, is about a fictional account of those times, but I think uh, authentic. And uh, I live them as a journalist, and I've always wanted to write about them. Well, and of course, you. Dr. Uh, King is. Go, go ahead. ahead no, please, please finish. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was simply saying Dr. King is not in the book. I haven't even fictionalized him because I wouldn't begin to try that. Uh, But of course his presence prevails throughout as the leader of the nonviolent civil rights protest. He was by then in 64, the preeminent leader of the civil rights movement, having had great success in the Montgomery bus boycott, his, I have a dream speech in 1963, all that he did in Birmingham. So he was in fact Uh, the preeminent leader of the civil rights movement, and there were a number of other prominent figures, but Dr. King was certainly foremost among them.
1: I I also want to let our listeners know that you grew up in Atlanta. So even as you were growing up, you watched the beginnings of the civil rights uh, movement as a younger uh, boy uh, and then ended up covering much of it, including the King Funeral. So we'll talk about that as we move forward. Um, We're also joined by uh, an old friend, Tiffany Williams Roberts, public policy director for the Southern Center for Human Rights, and by old I don't mean age. I just mean that we've always loved having you on the show, Tiffany. Many of the issues you deal with at the Southern Center are exactly the sorts of things that Dr. King fought for throughout his life. Yes?
3: Absolutely. And and many of the people who helped us to establish Southern Center for Human Rights um, were the friends, comrades, and contemporaries of Dr. King, Our mission is to decriminalize race and poverty in America's Deep South. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we're happy to do it.
1: And we'll talk a bit about that as the show goes on. Um, We're also joined by Ernie Suggs, Enterprise Reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ernie has covered civil rights. He's covered um, uh, he also has spent a great deal of time covering Jimmy Carter and the family over the years. And Ernie, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And the reason I saved you for last is I'd like you to start our conversation. You were at the at Ebenezer Baptist yesterday to cover President Biden's speech, um, the first time that a president has spoken on the actual, King birthday, which was yesterday, in the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist Church. So it was a somewhat historic moment. Tell us, uh, set the scene for us, uh, Biden's speech yesterday, Ernie.
4: Sure. And thank you for having me, Bill. Uh, As you mentioned, yes, uh, Presidents Carter, Clinton, Obama, uh, George W. Bush have all spoken at Ebenezer Baptist Church. But uh, President Biden, this is the first time that a sitting president has spoken there on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday um, in collaboration or or commemoration of the of the exact holiday. So it was a very special moment at the church. It was a special moment for the president, and it was a special moment for Raphael Warnock, as you know, who's the um, the junior senator from Georgia, who is also the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. So it was at the invitation of Reverend Warnock that Biden was able to come, and it was an important event because I think that considering all that Biden has gone through over the last week, particularly uh, with the uh, with the revelation about the documents that have been found in his house and at his um, office, he needed a soft landing. So politically, this was a soft landing for him where he can go to a friendly environment. um, Not only Ebony's Baptist Church, but Atlanta and Georgia. And we all know how important black voters are to him and the Democratic Party, how important they are nationally and 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 in Georgia. So this was kind of like that safe place. And it's kind of interesting, and Patricia has probably written reams about this, how during the campaign, um, uh, some of the some of the politicians, particularly Referee L. Warnock, kind of stayed away from um, President Biden. President Biden, as you know, did not come down here. I don't think he came down here during the campaign at all to campaign for Reverend Warnock. So this was kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say it was a kind of a reconciliation, but it was kind of an affirmation of that partnership and how important Raphael Warnock is, how important Georgia is, and 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 I think, and as I talked to Keisha Lance Bottoms yesterday, um, the former mayor of Atlanta, this was a, a, an authentic moment for Biden, a, a moment that he needed, a moment that he uh, relished, and um, and I think a lot of people felt that he spoke a lot from the heart last night, yesterday.
1: Patricia, in a moment, I want to play just a little sound from what uh, the president had to say yesterday, but I want to put it in context with you. A year ago on the King holiday, the president made a very impassioned speech about the need for a new voting national voting rights law to protect the rights of all people, minorities particularly, to cast ballots. He compared Republicans who had fought that effort to arch segregationists in the South in the past. He um, took some criticism, a lot of criticism, certainly from Republicans and actually from some Democrats as well. But all of that was a prelude to his trying to pass this new Voting Rights Act in Congress. He was stopped When he uh, pushed for an end to the filibuster in the Senate to allow the bill to come to the floor for a vote, and nothing ever happened. Um, So this year, it's interesting, his speech was much more subdued, Patricia.
0: Yeah, well, the purpose, obviously, of last year's speech was a call to action to congress that was really his audience in that moment and atlanta was the backdrop for that to try and pressure them really try and pressure republicans in the house and senate or just democrats to eliminate the filibuster in order to move voting rights ahead. That did not work, but I don't think people really fault Biden for that. I think they faulted um, either some Senate Democrats who were not willing to go along with getting rid of the filibuster for voting rights or House and Senate Republicans who weren't gonna vote for that bill in the first place. So there was a very specific reason for that. He and the vice president came um, and uh, it was really tailored to that moment in where the Congress was. They had one year left to get it done didn't get it done, but they did get a lot of other things done that really did support um, not just the black community, but particularly um, a number of minority communities. Yesterday, it really did feel like um, a bit of a reset and a call to Voters all over the country, not just members of Congress, but to connect the civil rights movement with exactly what we're seeing happening in Washington today in terms of continuing to battle for democracy, Mm -hmm. continuing to. He really connected uh, segregation in the past to insurrection today, saying it's essentially the same fight, um, the same sort of crucial mandate to be victorious, but that if you're thinking about Martin Luther King Day as just sort of a bookmark in history for that fight, that that's not what it is, that that was a piece of this ongoing struggle to make sure that um, American voices and voters of all colors, of all races and backgrounds can have their voices heard and their rights protected. So um, I thought that was really what he was doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the way you expressed all that. Let's listen to just a little bit of what uh, the president told people assembled at Ebenezer Baptist Church yesterday.
2: Dr. Martin Luther King was born in a nation where segregation was a tragic fact of life. He had every reason to believe, as others of the generation did, that history had already been written, that the division would be America's destiny. But he rejected that outcome Heard Micah's command to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly.
1: Tiffany, um, that there are those people who would argue that, um, that the effort to push for voting rights, which he made such a big po- point of trying to do with the vice president a year ago when he was here, um, have... Failed to understand that, especially let's just talk about it in terms of Georgia, that Georgia's voting rights laws, which have been attacked ever since SB 202 was passed, um, in fact, did not disadvantage or uh, disenfranchise minority voters, the midterm election being exactly a symbol that people were able to vote. Weigh in on that.
3: Sure, I've heard that before. And I think what is often missed is uh, Senate Bill 202 did attempt to disenfranchise Black voters, uh, but what isn't taken into account is the absolute strength of Georgia organizers. So what Georgia organizers have demonstrated over the last couple of election cycles is uh, the power of grassroots, multi-ethnic multi-generational multi-issue organizing that focuses on what drives people to the polls and what drives people to the polls is how to actualize the lives that they believe that they are entitled to and so um there were moments as a part of our organizing infrastructure here in the state at southern center we don't do electoral organizers organizing but we do assist and support organizations that do and it was no easy task these are people who are essentially their lives were on hold as they attempted to mobilize voters and so i think that it is a mistake just just as it would have been a mistake to say that segregation wasn't harmful and to hold up the civil rights act as proof of that the passage of the civil rights act as proof of that um the election of progressive legislators Uh, despite harmful laws isn't proof that the intent of the law wasn't harmful. It was just a catalyst for even more robust organizing from people on the ground, honestly, without the funds that they really needed.
1: All right. I, that just a little taste of uh, what I want to get to a little bit later in the show, which is let's talk about some of the unfulfilled promises that, um, Dr. King had hoped would by this time in our history have already been, uh, dealt with. Um, But before we do that, uh, John Pruitt, let's go back to kind of the roots of Dr. King as a civil rights leader. Just very quickly, I'll start by reminding people that um, he became involved in the Montgomery bus boycott which followed the Rosa Parks incident in which she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery City bus. She was arrested. It led to a year-long boycott, blacks in Montgomery refusing to take the bus. And Dr. King eventually, um, who uh, back then, um, that was before he had a pulpit here in Atlanta, he was in Montgomery, and he was uh, named the president of the— Montgomery, I think, Improvement Association was, I think, the name of it. And so he became deeply involved in the bus boycott, which eventually was successful. Um, Eventually, the city of Montgomery had to give in. Okay, so that happened. Coming out of Montgomery, King did come to Atlanta where he... Ralph Abernathy and Fred Shuttleworth, the great Alabama civil rights pastor and leader, formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in like 1958. And that really, in many ways, was the beginning of Atlanta, John, as the center of the civil rights struggle that Dr. King
2: uh, undertook. No question but that the Montgomery bus boycott made King the rising star in the civil rights movement. And when he came to Atlanta, of course, assuming leadership of the SCLC, uh, yes, indeed, that's when things really began to happen. Uh, it wasn't all successful. He went to Albany in 62 in yeah. to protest, and that turned out to be what King really described as a defeat, uh, mainly because the sheriff in Albany, Laurie Pritchett, uh, would not confront the protesters. He, he arrested them in mass and sent them to county jails around. Albany, but they could never amass the the uh, the number of people and protesters they needed to make that movement work, and so they really had to leave Albany. But then came a Birmingham, and we all know what happened in Birmingham: fire hoses in the streets, police dogs ripping at the clothes of young nonviolent protesters. It was a horrible image for Birmingham, but it really advanced the civil rights movement because the nation saw this on their television screens in the evening. The horror of this violent resistance to nonviolence and later in 63 the uh, i have a dream speech and of course in late 64 the nobel peace prize to dr king so without question when he came to atlanta that was the beginning of uh, a remarkable period for him growing in stature in ability and organizational skills and and uh and national international acclaim and I really think it really began in Montgomery, but was certainly advanced by the time he got to Atlanta in 1960. Ernie, add to this story, and if you don't mind, I'd like to direct you to 1960. Um,
1: we know that students in North Carolina had begun to have sit-ins at lunch counters that were segregated, um, and yes. so students here in in Atlanta decided that it was it, it was something they wanted to get engaged with. Um, one of the sit-ins was at a Rich's lunch counter that. Dr. King joined. He wasn't the leader of that movement, but he joined it. He, along with, I think, about 58 other people were arrested for not leaving the lunch counter. King was put in the DeKalb County Jail and was going to be sentenced to serve on a chain gang. He was the only one of the arrested uh, people in that protest who was held um and talk a little bit about that if you don't mind and and what important national political uh, event came out of that
4: yeah well that was that was that was a very significant event in dr king's life because that was the only time that he was arrested in georgia he was very uh and john can probably speak to this as well he was very reluctant to get involved directly in things that were happening in atlanta and in georgia because of his family and because this was his home base so he goes to this um to the student sit-in, he gets arrested, and they send him to uh, Reed's. Was it Reedsville,
2: John Reed? Yeah, yeah, that would have been the the prison he would have gone to. Yeah, that would have it would, he would have gone yeah. to. Yeah. Right.
4: But you know that when you Bill, you talk about that big national political thing. This is also the nineteen sixty presidential election, and he's you know his father is a famous uh, Dr. King's father was a famous Republican. They reach out to uh, the Nixon. Um, Campaign for help. They didn't get any help. And so they reached out to the Kennedy or the Kennedys found out, John F. Kennedy found out, and they were able to use some of their uh, political muster to get him out of jail. And that, you know, you know, you you see all these things about how traditionally African-Americans have been Republican, how, you know, we came out of the Republican Party. That's where, you know, our grandfathers and grandmothers voted when they were when they were able to vote or that's what they affiliated themselves with. But a lot of people attribute this 1960 arrest and the response from the Kennedys, who were famously Democratic, as shifting the Black political mindset from Republican to Democrat. As you know, um, in the 1960 election, uh, John F. Kennedy got more Black votes than Democrats generally would have gotten at that time. A lot of people attribute that to what he did for King. And as you know now, and as as was demonstrated yesterday at church yesterday, um, the uh, the Democratic Party is heavily dependent upon the votes of African Americans in this country and you can it, it can all be stemmed back to that. So you know if you look at Congress you look at you know how blacks support Democrats, how they do not support Republicans in general, um, it all kind of goes back to that Martin Luther King Jr. arrest.
1: Patricia, I I think that although King was already emerging as a national leader at at that point, I do think I was struck when I read the uh, story that the Associated Press moved um, on October 25th, 1960, about what had happened after the lunch counter sit-in. And here's the lead. A Negro leader who says integration is unstoppable, was ordered Tuesday to serve four months in a Georgia public works camp on a minor traffic violation. That was what really led him to be arrested from the lunch uh, counter sit-in. They were getting him on an old fake arrest over not having a driver's license, which he did. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., holder of degrees from at least five colleges, may spend that time on a road gang if an appeal is denied. How fascinating that that's how he is described. A Negro leader...
0: Well, it's fascinating. And first of all, I could listen to Ernie Suggs talk about this history all day long. I would like to, <laughs> I would like to request a 24 hour station of just that. Um uh, but you know, we talk about the history that was made on Sunday with Biden speaking from the pulpit. To me, the real history, the real history was who he was sitting next to um when he was sitting next to Raphael Warnock mm. to think that um from the beginnings of the struggle at Ebenezer um, in the 1950s um, you know, and 60s with Daddy King there and then with Dr. King there. Um, and then to fast forward to this moment when the pastor of Ebenezer has been just reelected to a full six year term as a United States senator, to me, was just so striking to behold. And so it shows really that um, although the progress is slow and uneven and occasionally. Um, backward and uh, uh regressive, um, to see it was just to me so incredible to see Biden there at the request of um, Raphael Warnock. Um, And then when when Biden wasn't here campaigning during the fall, that was also at the request of Raphael Warnock. It's not because the president didn't want to be here. It's because Raphael Warnock's campaign truly didn't want him here. And so uh, you have a sitting president who uh, who is truly at the uh, at the behest of uh, of Raphael Warnock and the pastor of Ebenezer, uh, coming or going, staying away or um, being there in the pulpit um, as a true partner and champion of of the pastor. And so, to me, it was just really remarkable and striking. And then to hear it against the overlay of all of the history that uh, led up to it is really to me what that day was all about.
1: So, um, Tiffany, I want to advance the, the story of King to something that's already been referred to. John, I think, mentioned it. Um, we know that one of his greatest moments was his speech at the March on Washington, uh, at the Reflecting Pool at the Lincoln uh, Memorial. And I'm just curious, uh, personally, um, Tiffany, um, you were probably very young when that speech happened, and I, I'm just, you know, curious about your personal reflections because th- through this program today, I'd like to hear. Personal reflections about some of what you all saw as you watched the civil rights movement unfold,
3: so I was just a twinkle of a twinkle in my parents' eyes I think
1: when the <laughs> well so then what do you think about how does it what does it mean yeah. to you now as an individual yeah.
3: so I am my mother was a community organizer. And before we, we started recording the show, uh, I texted her and I said, who did you, who was it you went to go see Speak when you were in graduate school? Because she tells a story about how she was in graduate school in Indiana and they drove to this church in what was Klan country um, to go see um, Thokley Carmichael Speak at a church. And it was her and my godmother and their best friend. They were a little ruffle And... Um, What I think about when I hear that speech in many of King's words um, is about the labor that is necessary uh, to propel us forward and the trust we have to have in each other as human beings, that for 20 year olds driving in Klan country to go see a member of the Black Panther Party speak Or my one of the people who was with her is my aunt. She's from Birmingham, and she was also she was actually a part of the Birmingham Children's Crusade. Mm. And she tells these stories of those arrests and how they would wait and they would scurry to the hallway just to see when they would bring King through. They just wanted to get a glimpse of him because they were part of the larger movement in Birmingham. And so that speech, along with others, um, highlight for me a couple of things. But one of those things is the danger of being caught up. In the cult of personality and acknowledging that that was not something that king wanted he wanted to be a to be seen as a part of a magnificent whole mm. and and he wasn't a very popular figure um a third of americans when he was killed believed that he brought his death on himself Uh, 10% of black churches would allow him to speak. And so it wasn't flowery and beautiful. It was dangerous and courageous. And those are the things that I try to hold dear as we think about the work that we have to do in these moments.
1: Thank you for that personal reflection. I loved hearing that. I've got to get to a break, but I want to talk about this, the speech at the March on Washington, what became the I have a dream speech uh, after we come back. Uh, But let's pause just for a moment for these messages. Patricia Murphy and Ernie Suggs from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tiffany Williams-Roberts from the Southern Center for Human Rights, and John Pruitt, author of Tell a True and former anchor for many years at uh, WSB-TV. John, when the I Have a Dream speech uh, happened in 1963, where were you? Were you, you, you were, Were you still in Atlanta at that point? Had you gone into the service at that point? Where were you and do you remember that speech?
2: I was a senior at Davidson college, okay. <laughs> uh, preparing to graduate as a history major, not having a clue as to what I was going to end up doing. And, uh, by a providential good fortune, I, I ended up in television journalism. Uh, but yeah, I was in school and, uh, I, I thought Tiffany's remarks were interesting about, uh, the unpa- unpopularity of Dr. King. Uh, He was not universally loved by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, And there were many conservative Black congregations that maybe didn't want uh, the trouble of having Dr. King come. But I think that speech, uh, the galvanizing power of Dr. King's eloquence at that moment, uh, just did so much for the movement. And I I thought it was a consolidating speech. It was to everyone. And uh, it was powerful. I remember being moved by it. I am still moved by it every time I hear it.
1: Ernie Suggs, um, we all, we know, and partly we know because of the stories you've written on it, uh, the uh, Southern Center, I mean the Center for Civil and Human Rights in downtown Atlanta, um, which has access to the King Papers and can put some of them on display at any given time, has now got the, a text on display of the original speech that Dr. King planned to give. As you tell us in an article that you've written, um, and I think it's fairly well known that I Have a Dream wasn't initially part of it. It was Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer, sitting behind him as she heard the speech unfolding, who thought it needs a little more pizzazz, Martin, and kind of shouted out (laughs) to him, tell him about the dream, Martin. So talk about that, but also give us a little... Uh, background on what was in that speech initially that never never got used.
4: Yeah, I mean the thing the thing that's important to understand about Martin Luther King Jr. is that he was a. You mentioned that like that Associated Press story. He had five degrees, and all those degrees were in theology and and ministry. So he was a intellectual scholar as well as a preacher. So he wasn't a country preacher, and I'm not saying country preacher in a derogatory me- word uh, and a uh, uh, meaning, but. He wrote a serious kind of policy speech, or you would call it a policy speech today, because he knew that the world was going to be listening. He knew that 250,000 people were going to be there and that he was going to be on the stage, this his largest stage ever. So he wanted to have a serious conversation. He talked about the promissory note. So a lot of things that we I, we recognized in the first 12 minutes of the I Have a Dream speech come from Normalcy Never Again, which was the originally written part of his speech. So a lot of that is still there. Um, so I don't want people to think that it was a totally different speech. Now, um, I talk about in my story, now I'm from a town called Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And when I talk about how Ronald King wasn't, wasn't a country preacher, he was still a a preacher whose father was a preacher, whose brother was a preacher, whose grandfather was a preacher. And you know that preachers work on things. They kind of work on themes. They work on patterns. So my hometown of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina in 1962, November 1962, he came and spoke and my mother said she was there. I'm not sure if she was there or not, but he came and spoke and he mentioned, I have a dream. He talked about, I have a dream. And in June of 1963, he goes to Detroit and speaks, and he talks about, I have a dream. Mahalia Jackson, as you mentioned, Bill, was in the audience that day. Now, when you go back to that March on Washington speech, which was supposed to be six minutes, it was going into 12 minutes, and it was a speech. And I think that Mahalia Jackson, having come out of the church and understanding what um, can get a crowd going, wanted this speech to be peppier. So at the 12 minute march, he says, tell him about the dream. And at that moment, he just snaps, And he shifts automatically into I have a dream. So it wasn't planned. He had never thought about it earlier. He and Clarence Jones had written the speech. It wasn't something that was going to be a part of that speech. And he just kind of shifted into that preacher mode. He can't he kind of went into that country preacher mode to talk about that dream, but also to put it in context of what he was saying and what they were there to accomplish that that march on Washington. So it became like this great, you know, you, you asked Tiffany, where was she during the speech? Um, she wasn't born. I wasn't born either. <laughs> so, you know, grow, but you know, I was a kid growing up in the 1970s. So as a black kid, you know, Mark I Have a Dream speech is the first thing you kind of understand, you know, kind of growing up, understanding rhetoric and things of that nature. So I've always kind of understood what the I have a dream speech and the importance of it. Um and being able to kind of write about it and understand its history makes it even more important. And it makes it even more special when you understand where it came from and how it came about. Patricia, And it was
1: all improvised. I apologize for jumping in. Patricia, weigh in on all this. <laughs>
0: So I think it's also um, talking about sort of a a rhetorical success. um, He didn't just inspire black Americans with that speech. He also clearly inspired um, an entire generation of white Americans with that speech and uh, something that Joe Biden talked about as Uh, Ernie referenced in his speech um, to Ebenezer was just how incredibly influenced Joe Biden was and this entire generation of white leaders, white progressives um, who heard and saw Martin Luther King speaking and then used that as the basis for their own political activism and their own path going forward. And um, that is so important when you start to see who is then elected in the later years. Um, Biden said that his two influences were uh, Robert Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King. And uh, he said that that really played a huge role in all of the work that he went on to do from there, um, he didn't. He is not the perfect enactment of that dream, but he certainly was heavily influenced by it. When I was um, working in the Senate and covering uh, Congress. You can't imagine how many white leaders say that they were heavily influenced by that speech in particular um, and the work that they went on to do. And many of them uh, went south as well to um, work with the Freedom Riders, uh, to go to Mississippi to do their own small part. Um, now, obviously, they were able to go back home and you know not even think twice about it. or um, well, they did think twice about it. That's not quite right. But I think the influence that King had on sort of the entire nation and the people who went on to be elected um, with that speech uh, just cannot be understated. And you see it um, even as recently as Sunday.
1: You know, John, I've I've mentioned on this program before that I grew up in Chicago. Um, I was in high school when the civil rights movement really was getting underway in the 60s. Um, Went on to college. It was still going on. But I was in the Midwest. So I watched it from afar. And when I finally arrived in Atlanta, John, in 1983, And suddenly, all of a sudden, got to know these extraordinary leaders who I'd watched from a distance to know John Lewis, uh, to to meet him, to get to talk to him, to know Hosea Williams, uh, the character of the civil rights movement, Ralph Abernathy, um, Andy Young. It was, to me, so extraordinary. You were there when it was all unfolding and got to know them, too. And I'm particularly interested to ask you about the coverage you did because you were one of the reporters at the funeral of Dr. King in Atlanta. So I'd love to know some of your thoughts just in general about those great civil rights leaders you you actually covered. And then take us to the funeral.
2: Well, you're right. I mean, I I think back and on those days— uh, of familiarity with Andy Young and Hosea Williams and and John Lewis and people we were covering and perhaps not recognizing mm-hmm. the greatness that would be theirs as they as they aged and uh, what an extraordinary uh, opportunity, Bill. I know you share that feeling. Uh, as Ernie pointed out, Dr. King really didn't spend much time in Atlanta in a professional sense. He was mm-hmm. out. Uh, in other areas uh, organizing protests so it didn't see a lot of Dr King but I will tell you one of the paramount memories of my entire career was actually interviewing Dr King at his home <laughs> in southwest atlanta on a sunday afternoon and he was gracious and wonderful and forthcoming and articulate and eloquent and i you know it it's, it's a memory i will always cherish but you mentioned the funeral and there have been few days in atlanta history like it if if ever, uh, I, I, I was simply, uh, I'll use the term blown away by the number of people who were there who were VIPs, household names, stars of the political world, the entertainment world. I, I watched the uh, congressional delegation getting off the plane uh, and it was incredible. One after the other, Bobby Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, all of them, a who's who Mm. of Congress. The entire cabinet of LBJ was at the funeral. The show business world, Sidney Poitier, uh, Rod Steiger, uh, (laughs) Harry Belafonte, of course, uh, Marlon Brando uh, from the international community. Haile Selassie was probably the the big uh, name. He was the former head of uh, Ethiopia, Ethiopia. of course. Uh, So we had the world here. And it's important to set the context because following the assassination of Dr. King, uh, cities across the country went up in flames. There was looting, there was burning, there was protest, did not happen in Atlanta for a number of reasons. Uh, I think the progressive leadership of Atlanta played a major part in that. We had several days of rain, that didn't hurt, but here's the world assembling in Atlanta to honor Dr. King. And there was trepidation about what might happen Lester Maddox, governor at the time, had ringed the state capitol with state troopers, fearing the funeral goers would try to take over the capitol. Well, that, of course, never happened. Uh, it was an entirely um, wonderful day of honoring Dr. King, the service in Ebenezer, Benjamin Mays giving the eulogy, the mule train march from, uh, from Ebenezer to Morehouse College where the public ceremony was held. It was a remarkable day peaceful day, and uh, I probably uh, one of the greatest days in Atlanta history. And that's saying a lot, but it was entirely memorable for me. Um, it must have been an extraordinary event to have a piece of
1: as a journalist. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that with us, John. I want to talk um, about what is left undone. Uh, But let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll come back and do that with this extraordinary panel that we have on Political Rewind today. We're devoting today to talking about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., who would have been 94 years old this year, uh, had he lived, he would have had his 94th birthday yesterday. Um, But uh, while we've talked about the past, uh, I I think it's important that we also talk about what needs to, still needs to be done, the things that have not yet been accomplished. And so I'm basically go around and give each one of you a chance to talk about that. Patricia, I mean, I can list any number of things. Income inequality continues to be an issue in this country. Generational wealth, uh, um, African Americans, other minorities at a disadvantage there for many uh, reasons. Um, the prison industrial complex. There are so many things we I could talk about, but I'd love to get each of you to give me your take on where we stand today and where we need to get if we are going to be a beloved community that Dr. King believed in.
0: So I think um, one of the biggest places that we still need to make just immense amount of progress is just in simply in representation, in terms of equal representation of um, Black faces in Congress. And to have the Black Caucus um, seen less as a caucus and more as a... Um, as and more than a cause but as uh people kind of fully in- integrated into the power structure i think the fact that hakim jeffries has taken over as the democratic leader is for democrats in the house um is so immensely important but you also look at the numbers in the house and senate um particularly in the senate where they're just still a handful of uh democratic well uh there's uh obviously democratic and Uh, Republican senators, but just a handful of black faces, just a handful of Latino faces. And I think until that changes, we really can never truly have a representative um, body of work coming out of Congress. There's, there's almost just no way for that to happen. And so um, a piece of that is going to be gerrymandering. Cha- any possible changes to how people are elected um, would go a long way. And then in terms of statewide races, I do think that Raphael Warnock's election has been so meaningful. A big piece of it is because he is such a prolific fundraiser. He has really shattered these notions that Black statewide candidates um, are candidates cannot uh, fundraise are not electable statewide to see a battleground state like Georgia put forward Raphael Warnock for a full six-year term is so immensely important because it tells um, donors and power structures um, within the Democratic and Republican Party that that, that those candidates um, can not just be successful, but can be the most successful. And so um, to me, it's, it really will be continue to be about representation and then the legislation can follow from there.
1: Um, you know, I'm interested, um, uh, Ernie, in, in in the first thing, uh, among other things that Patricia said, she she talked about representation. It's fascinating that right now we're going to we're waiting. It won't be until June, probably, for the Supreme Court to make a ruling on a very important case in Alabama where uh, redistricting denied blacks a second congressional district that they would uh, be the ma- in which they would be the majority. And, of course, a lot of what happens with voting rights these days has to do with redistricting and gerrymandering. And that Alabama case is a great example of concerns about equal representation.
4: Yeah. I mean, when you talk about whether or not the dream has been fulfilled or or, or accomplished, you know, there are still a lot of obstacles. You know, we have made a lot of progress in terms of politics, um, sports, you know, entertainment you know, the, the, the country that Dr. King left in 1968 is not the country in which we are living in now, but there are, there are a lot of obstacles that are in place that are obstacles that are artificially placed, uh, in front of black people that have kept them from, uh, accomplishing all that can be accomplished. And that's not, you know, that's not necessarily a, um, the fault of anyone's, but it's, you know, it, it's there, it's there. So, um, I think that you know one of the things that Patricia was talking about in terms of representation, I remember is kind of you know and I'll try to go quickly watching the McCarthy hearings and watching how they were parading Donalds out there as this face of the future of the of the Republican Party as this black man, and I you know I think that if 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 there is kind of go, going to be any kind of movement, I think both parties need to kind of embrace and accept that this country is very diverse you know the republicans talk about their diversity but it's not really shown it's not really is and i think that donald's i think that parading donald's out there was kind of this example of what they are really truly lacking and what they're really truly missing and i think that one of the things in which we can get this dream set is to kind of have full representation on both sides of the aisle and if the republican party you know Put more, you know, the, with gerrymandering and redistricting and getting more candidates out there, I think that's going to go a long way in terms of making things a little different.
1: Yeah, for several rounds of the vote for Speaker, the humiliating Kevin McCarthy's uh, 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 vote voting for Speaker, there was Republicans put forward an African American uh, member from uh, Florida. Uh, As an alternate to um, uh, McCarthy, Tiffany, a lot of the work you do at the Southern Center involves uh, disparities, discrimination that leads to the imprisonment of of, uh, a preponderance of black men, particularly. Um, Tell us a little bit and and a lot about the prison industrial complex. So talk to us a little bit about that aspect of the dream unfulfilled.
3: Sure. Sure. Right, so as as I mentioned, our quest is to decriminalize race and poverty, and that's in part because the criminal legal system is often the safety net uh, that catches people that our country either despises or is disposing of. And so we talk about Dr. King's arrest in DeKalb County as a that was a part of a warrant issued after a bomb traffic stop. These are things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis at Southern Center. Police killings uh, were at a record high in 2022. That's just two years after the uprisings in this country related um, to the murder of George Floyd. And so for every policy advance, there is always a proportionate or sometimes disproportionate backlash and we are seeing that Right now, in real time, and and so my hope is that we focus. I mean, we, we if we listen to Dr. King's words in '67, he said that his dream had become a nightmare, and he talked about having to ground ourselves in realism. And so we should anchor ourselves in hope, but also in the very violent realities that people who do not have money or and Black people especially experience in this country, even in cities like Atlanta that are where we have Black representation. Southern Center folks, we've been to Geneva twice in the last year. I happened to go for the first session of the Permanent Forum of People of African Descent at the UN. And this um, oppression is universal across the world, and we have to be real about that and Mm. take it
1: on. Thank you. John Pruitt?
2: Well, Bill, uh, as hard as it is to imagine, uh, the challenges of the 60s and the 50s, the Civil Rights Movement initially were actually fairly easy compared to the challenges we face today. Uh, How could you deny American citizens, African-American citizens, the ability to take full advantage of American society? It was fairly cut and dried. The the typical part was was getting to the legislation that changed the laws. But we've come a long way. And in many respects, the problems of today are much more difficult. Uh, Income inequality, the political voting dynamic we've discussed, uh, incarceration rates, uh, educational opportunity, all of that. These are tough issues. Uh, I think that I think American society uh, has to look back at the civil rights movement and look at the segregationists of the day, uh, violently uh, opposing progress that was logical and, and just and had to happen. It was going to happen. Today, uh, we have people who are not accepting of the fact that our society is changing demographically and very rapidly. And we have to come to ways to, to deal with that, to, to bring about fairness, and it's, it's going to be a tough slog. I mean, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go in terms of attitudes changing and accepting the reality. That society is changing, and we as a people are going to have to deal with that. You know, and a final word on
1: all that, Patricia, based on what John just said. We are more diverse as a country, as a state, than ever before. And yet, white supremacists um, and racial discrimination, hate crimes, are um, also prevalent in a way that is shocking to all of us.
0: <clears throat> yes, and I think that is uh, part of the backlash that Tiffany was talking about. You have this forward progress and then you have this sort of explosion of um, resistance to that forward momentum or just simply to change. Uh, you know, you'll we'll never forget the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, those were not diverse faces ransacking the Speaker's office and sitting in chairs in the U.S. Senate. It had a lot to do with the changes that have already happened in this country and getting behind a movement that is trying to reverse the country and go backwards.
1: Patricia Murphy, you get the last word on what I thought was just a wonderful edition of Political Rewind today. So thank you, uh, Patricia. Ernie Suggs, Come back more often. We love having you on the show. Tiffany, thank you so much uh, for being here as well and representing SCHR the way that you do. And John Pruitt, my old friend and colleague, you are a wealth of history about this state and it's such a joy to have you on the show. That's it. We are Thank you, Bill. Sure, we're completely out of time for Political Rewind today, but we're back, of course, with a brand new edition of the show uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I am Bill Nigut. It's been a pleasure to be with you all today, and I hope you'll come back with us tomorrow when we'll get into more about what's happening down at the legislature where Budget Week is unfolding. Until then, take care, stay healthy, and COVID's coming back, folks, so please go get whatever shots you haven't had yet. Take care, everybody.